service. Well, today I get to continue the sermon series that we started several weeks ago. And we've simply been calling this sermon series A Hole in the Gospel. A Hole in the Gospel. And this series, as I've said a couple uh, week, week after week, is based on this book by Richard Stearns called A Hole in the Gospel. And basically, Richard Stearns is uh, the CEO of World Vision, which is one of the largest and most, I guess, famous uh, humanitarian organizations around the world. And Richard Stearns tells a story, basically the story in his book of how God called him out of corporate America as he was climbing the uh, corporate ladder, becoming richer by the day, and caused him to take this job with World Vision, flew him all around the world, and he saw all this suffering and all this pain, and God really re- rewired his heart as it relates to the poor. And Richard Stearns basically shares his heart in this book. And the book is what this sermon series is based on, and we've called this series The Whole in our gospel. And this series, much like the book, asks the question, are we missing something as it relates to what God's heart is and his disposition and his attitude is toward the poor? We're asking also the question, what does God expect of us? Are we missing something as it relates to what he expects from us, right? So over the next few weeks, we will try to patch up this hole in our gospel and move closer to what God considers wholeness, W-H-O-L-E, rather than having a hole in our gospel. And for clarity's sake, we've said each week that there's not an actual hole in the gospel. The gospel is rather complete. There is, however, a hole in our understanding of who Jesus is, more importantly, who Jesus expects us to be and how we're supposed to live that out. And we've said week after week that when there's a hole in our understanding about who Jesus is, and there's a hole in our understanding of how we're supposed to walk this out, then there will be a hole in our walk. We'll be missing things. Our walk will be incomplete. Our walk will be shallow. And our relationship with God will suffer. We've looked as a basis for this series in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where, Jesus, where, where God basically speaks to the prophet and tells his people what he expects of them. And Micah says this in verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does God expect from you? All these fancy things that look good to other people and all these, uh, you know, religious embellishments, all this sort of stuff. Jesus, the Lord says, listen, I'm going to simplify this for you. I want you to do justly. I want you to love mercy. And I want you to walk humbly before your God. And simply put, I want you to be just. I want you to show mercy. And I want you to be faithful. I want to walk humbly with your God. And that's just sort of basis of this whole series. And for the first week, we looked at trying to define what the whole was. And we did that by looking at Jesus' mission, what Jesus said he came here to do. And as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, we essentially needed to do those same things in order to be on sort of on song with what Jesus' heart is toward the people on this earth. And Jesus said that he came to preach the gospel, free the captives, heal the brokenhearted, right? To proclaim the good news to those who are captive. And he expects us to do that. And the whole essentially was that we're missing out on that. We're focusing on things that were less important, thinking that those things were the things that we're supposed to be doing. And Jesus sort of identifies the whole for us. Last week, we looked at finding the whole in me. And we looked at a passage in Matthew that basically had Jesus highlighting the final judgment or what he's looking for, what he will be judging when he comes back, right? And basically what Jesus says is, I'm looking for how you treat the least of these. I'm looking for not what you say, but I'm looking at how you live, what you do, your actions, particularly actions toward those who are least and those who are lost. And typically we find that that's the whole in us. And this week I want to continue by asking a question 
And that question is, what is wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? More simply put, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? And if you were honest and you just sort of listed a whole bunch of things, you'd probably use several sheets of paper front and back listing perhaps what's wrong with you. But I'm talking more in in a comprehensive sense. What's one of our main problems, particularly as it relates to dealing with this hole in our gospel, particularly as it relates to dealing with this misunderstanding about who we should be and what's most important? And I think that the problem that many of us have, if not all of us, our problem can be boiled down to this one simple word, and that is greed. That is greed. We got a greed problem. Some of you are like, man, I knew I shouldn't have come today talking about greed. <laughs> no, I'm glad you're here today. We talk about greed. What's the problem? What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with us? Generally speaking, we have a greed problem. Greed problem. Pastors hear lots and lots of confessions. People come and feel the need to bear their souls to their pastors, and usually they're basically saying, in a manner of speaking, I need help with this particular area of my life because it's taxing me in a significant way, and I realize that if I don't get some help with this, I'm going to be in trouble. So typically people are coming and confessing, saying, hey, listen, I have a drug or a substance abuse problem, and the outworking of that is me spending all my money buying drugs, you know, neglecting my family, neglecting my bills. I have this drug problem. I need to fix it. Or I have this anger problem, and the outworking of that anger problem is my relationships are broken. My wife is packed up, but she's taking the kids. You know, I can't hold down the job. I have such a short fuse. I have this issue. Or somebody says, listen, I got this loss problem, man. I keep, you know, visiting prostitutes. Or I keep looking at pornography. I don't love my wife like I should. I got this loss problem. And the list goes on and on and on. But I've never had somebody come to me and say, Pastor, you know what my problem really is? You know, I got a greed problem. I'm just too greedy. I'm just too much of a consumer. I'm so consumed with acquisition of wealth and acquisition of the snacks of life that's really destroying my life. Can you please, can you please tend to this issue? Never have I heard that. Never have I heard that. And that generally speaks to us being out of touch with the reality of what our main problems are. And it's not because we're trying to ignore our greed problem. It's because the greed problem is, it's a subtle creature, isn't it? It's subtle. It's subtle. It it weaves itself in with noble goals and pursuits. It weaves itself in with the value of being hardworking and understanding the value of a dollar. And it weaves itself in and it almost appears to be virtuous when we can't see the roots of it corrupts our souls. The roots of us leaves us stingy. The roots of it leaves us forfeiting what God wants to do and bless us through our generosity. Greedy, greediness and greed is, is subtle. And it deprives us of the things that God would have for us. So subtle that we miss it. And we stay greedy. And we stay in the state we're in. And as a result of that, the people that we're called to be a blessing to, the people that are called to receive God's blessing and his bounty through us, you never get that. And that's a major, major problem. I want to look at a passage of scripture this morning that paints a good picture of this. I'm going to look at Luke, Luke chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 13. I hope you have your Bibles with you today. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on your rows. Feel free to use those. Feel free to take one of those, by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, we'll also be projecting it on the screen. We're talking about greed this morning. That's our problem for many of us. 
We're going to see what the scriptures have to say about that. Before we do, let me pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for these folks who've gathered here, not to come and see me, but to come and hear a word from you. Come to worship and to fellowship alongside your people this morning. I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't leave disappointed. Lord, I know this can be difficult, intense subject matter. So, Lord, I pray that you would go before me and prepare the hearts of your people to receive this. Father, would you move me out of the way so that your truth and light might shine through? Father, would this not just be an exercise of just speaking and listening, but rather would this serve to change the hearts of your people, to move us closer, ever closer to you, that we might be transformed? Uh, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 12. Start this morning around verse 13. And this is an account of an interaction that Jesus had with a crowd. Jesus is always interacting with, with crowds, people always around him. I think he loved to interact and teach others. But here's an interaction with the crowd that Jesus has. We'll start at verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Continues in verse 16. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, You have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now as a preacher, I see about half a dozen or more sermons in this passage alone I won't bore you with all of those this morning. I just will pull a couple things out of his really interesting story. And I say that a lot because I think Jesus is a really interesting guy. He didn't waste words. He was very intentional about his words, very intentional about the story he told. And as we see this interaction that Jesus has with this crowd, somebody pipes up out of the crowd, you know, town hall style, and just throws this question at Jesus or throws this request at Jesus. He says, listen, tell my brother... To divide our father's estate with me. So we can just sort of gather that, you know, one son is not really being fair with the inheritance that he got. Or a son got an inheritance and the other son did not get an inheritance. And the son that didn't get any portion of that is upset with it, thinking that it would be fair for his brother to divide his wealth with him. And Jesus says, basically, friend, who made me judge over you to decide these affairs, these matters? In other words, Jesus said, listen... I'm not Judge Judy here. I, you know, this isn't, I'm preaching here. I'm not trying to be in a, you know, trying to settle your disputes here. But Jesus, always seeking an opportunity to teach, drops this nugget on him. He says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now, that's a nugget of truth that we ought to tuck in our shirt pockets this morning. And take with us each and everywhere we go. And what does Jesus say? He says, watch out. It's a word of warning. Be careful. Be cautious. Be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for what? For all manners of greed. That all manners of greed suggest that they're more than one kind. 
And some of us, when we think about greed, we think about the Scrooge McDuck, you know, like swimming in the, you know, the vault of coins. If, you've, if, you're, if, you, if you're young enough or old enough to remember, you know, DuckTales or whatever, right? But we think of this, you know, guy grinning as he counts his money, grinning as he counts his coins, you know, with dollar signs in his eyes or, you know, flashy rings. And so we think about money, right? And greed, I guess, most often amounts to a, uh, an unhealthy pursuit or unhealthy uh, value of money. But they're all manners of greed, as Jesus presents to us. All manners of greed. Some of us are money hungry, but some of us are status hungry. Some of us want, you know, are greedy uh, for the favor of men and status that comes along with that. And so we'll do anything to get it. Some of us may not like to pursue money so much, but you like to gather stuff and whatever, you know, stuff depends on whatever you're into, whatever your hobbies are. Whatever makes you say, wow, whatever makes you feel, you know, satisfied or accomplished. Some of us pursue material wealth, stuff, things, right? Some of us want that corner office so bad that we'll do anything to get it. And Jesus says, be on the lookout for that because it'll corrupt your soul. It'll take you down the wrong path because life is not about that. There's more to life than stuff. There's more to life than money. There's more to life than the pursuit of all that stuff. And if you get wrapped up in that... You're going to be messed up. You're going to be messed up because greed is about you. Greed is about me. And the kingdom of God is about God and others. Right? I said a few weeks ago that it's a life-altering perspective to adopt the perspective that life is not about me. And life is not about you. We look at the selfish people that we know. We look at people who are driven to do inconceivable things, to do harmful things, to do selfish things, at the root of that is, a, is their faulty understanding that this life is about their satisfaction, their gratification, what they can get out of it. And greed plays into this. Greed says, listen, you've earned that. Greed says you worked hard, right? Greed cuts against the grain that's the, of, of, the, of the very core understanding in the Christian's life is that this is not about me. It's not about me. It's not about mine, Right? And the Christian faith constantly causes us to slay what some would call the me monster. The me monster. Monster that wells up within you and causes you to snack, snatch all the things and only consider yourselves. Many of us wrestle with the me monster. And this me monster visit us, visits us at a young age and it sticks with us, for some of us, for life. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. In fact, rare is it that you find a child that their generous, general disposition is others-minded, right? Every, you know, one millionth child that you come across has this strange disposition of generosity towards others. And you just, people just watch it and they just marvel. Why? Because that's an anomaly. What's generally true is that children are selfish. The first words are mine, me, you know, snatching things, even snatching things that aren't theirs. It's really a spectacle to watch. They're not your kids. <laughs> Me, mine. It starts with kids. Those are my toys. That's, those are my snacks. Those are my fruit snacks. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And then as you grow, the things that you grab at just happen to just mature a little bit. Those are, those, that's my, you know, whatever you call it, DS. That's my Game Boy or whatever. That's mine. That's mine. And as you grow up in the teenage years, you just start to grab at teenage things. 
Then as you move to young adults, young adult stage, you start to grab at young adult things. In middle ages, you grab at middle age things. And as you're a retiree, you start reti- grab at things that retirees grab at. The me monster, selfishness, greed, right? This is mine. I've earned this. This is mine. I'm do this. And some of you might be silently arguing in your mind, but this is my stuff. This is my stuff. Listen, I went to school for that. I worked hard for that. I learned to trade for that. I, I was patient for that. This is my stuff. What are you talking about, preacher? This is my stuff. I suppose to some degree it is. But when we talk about generosity and where that comes from, we talk about the Christian life and what it's rooted in. Basically, we talk over and over about the reality that, you know, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And that all the stuff that we have, all the stuff that we consider ours is simply on loan to us because they've been given to us by God. And sure, you might have worked hard to get where you are. Sure, you might have worked hard to get that six-figure salary that you earned. Sure, you might have worked hard to get those things that you have acquired and that you have gained. But don't lose sight of the fact that all that stuff comes from God. And if you want to challenge that understanding, if you want to challenge that belief, consider this. You live in the United States of America. And in the United States of America, it's relatively easy compared to much much other parts of the world to, to climb the ladder or to find opportunities. So while you're hardworking and you have a strong resolve and you're very driven, that's fine. But if you were born in the slums of Sierra Leone, on the slums of Mexico somewhere, or on Ivory Coast, or born in the Congo. Your opportunities might be very different. And I say that because we have a tendency to overlook the fact that God has blessed us simply when we observe the fact that we were born in the United States. Yeah, you worked hard, but you take that same work ethic. You take that same drive, and you transplant it to a less fortunate part of the world, and we'll see where you end up without God's goodness and his mercy and his favor. You understand what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, we start to put some things into perspective here. You didn't choose where you were born. God did. And we we consider ourselves blessed to be able to be born in a land where we can climb the ladder. Be born in a place where we can experience religious freedom, where we can gather with one another and worship without the fear of being rounded up. This is a blessing from God. And Jesus is telling the crowds this story because he's trying to warn them about greediness. He proceeds to tell this story about a rich guy. And this rich guy, we see a picture of ourselves. I love how Jesus opens this story. Jesus opens the story in verse 16. He says, then he told them a story. And the story goes this way. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So how does Jesus open this story? I love how Jesus opens this story. He starts, uh, he opens this story by talking about the ground, right? The soil. He starts this story talking about the ground. And I've read this passage dozens and dozens of times, and I never really saw this particular angle before. He says, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. The ground produced good crops. And I see in this story something that I've overlooked before. And if you blink, you'll miss it. 
we see a farmer who was likely very, very hardworking, very, very driven, very much had a strong resolve. But what Jesus highlights in the opening sentence is the fact that this guy had a farm that had fertile soil. He had fertile soil. And I know there are things that farmers can do to improve the quality of the soil, but generally speaking, the soil belongs to God. The starting ground belongs to him. In other words, there were circumstances beyond this farmer's control that produced favorable results for him. And I think that if we blink, we'll miss this whole understanding that this guy had a blessing in his soil. So basically what we're seeing is that this guy had a good year. Soil was, was really on that particular year. And this guy's farm produced some great crops. His yield was so high that he wanted to tear down his barns in order to build larger ones. He wanted to tear down his barn to build larger ones. And so we see this farmer is presented with a problem. And if you're a farmer, I think we have one or two farmers among us today. This is kind of a good problem to have, to have too much. And this was the problem, the farmer's issue. The farmer simply had too much. His crop yielded too much. And this was his response. Verse 17, he said to himself, what should I do? I have no room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barn and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and my other goods. And I'll sit back and I say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now we immediately, because we know where the preacher's going this morning, we immediately turn up our nose at this guy and go, oh, I can't believe that sinner, right? Because you know where I'm going, right? But the picture that we see is a picture that we're looking in the mirror today. We're looking in the mirror today because this is a picture of us. And this doesn't strike me as like this one-off response, that this farmer is normally generous, he's normally very conscious of others. He normally would call the local food bank and say, hey, I got more than I need. Would you come and bring the wagon and and take some for the local orphans and widows? This doesn't seem like a one-off response. This seems like what this farmer does when he has excess. What the farmer might do if this should happen Again, and this is a picture that shows us the condition of a person's heart, the condition of a person's soul. Rather than to give and to rather be merciful and generous with his bounty to build a mother barn instead and store this away. So listen, maybe I can kick back for the next couple of years. Maybe I can just sort of relax and just, just, just go to my silo and sort of get what I've stored up. Before we throw this man to the lions, we see a picture of ourself here. And as we read further, we see that God had a problem with this guy's methods. He had a problem with his methods. And you might ask, what is the problem? Well, let's read further in the story. But God said to him, you fool. That gives us a clue that God wasn't really pleased with his course of action. You fool. Guess what? You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. I think we can misinterpret a lot of the scriptures, a lot of the teachings of Jesus, a lot of the things that Jesus said, and misconstrue, uh, and come with the false reality that Jesus had something against rich people. I don't think Jesus had a problem with wealth. 
I don't think Jesus had a problem with rich people. He had a problem with what wealth does to people. It's a problem with how wealth has a tendency to corrupt. Wealth, caught, you know, he had a problem with how people tended to love wealth and, and be drawn toward it in a negative way and in a, in a way that caused them to neglect more important things. So Jesus didn't have a problem with money. He just hated the effect that it had on our hearts. Jesus says, you fool. You fool. You fool. Continues to say, for a fool store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. He says, listen, man, that's good. You got all this stuff stored up. You had a great crop this year. That's fantastic. Oh, you decided not to be generous with it. You decided to store it away and build another barn. Great. Listen, um, this is your last day. What, what's your plan for after you die? What's, what's going to happen with all of that stuff that you were living for, that you gloried in, that you were excited about? What's your plan after death? In other words, what are you really working toward here? What's your money? What's your possessions? What's your stuff? What is that in the light of eternity, man? What is all of that in the light of eternity? And Jesus adds this as a kicker. This is what it's like for anyone who stores up for himself but is not generous toward God. In other words, this will become, this is what will become of a person when they hoard stuff on earth and aren't generous toward God and toward others. And other, some of us would, would, would hear this today and say, Blood is not talking to me. I'm not greedy because I don't have anything. I'm living from paycheck to paycheck. I'm glad this particular message doesn't hit me, you know. The last four of them nail me right between the eyes. I can relax today. Preacher's not talking about me. Well, I just want to give you a little bit of perspective here as it relates to wealth and as it relates to us. We find that if you make more than $9,000 a year, which is well below the poverty line, you are among the top 10% of the richest people in the world because obviously much of the world lives on much, much less than that. Much, much less than that. Right? So we say, man, listen, I'm not wealthy. I don't have much. So surely God doesn't require much of me. But when we zoom out and we see God's view, the grand scope of abject poverty that exists over much of the world, Our little, relative to who has the most, is still a whole lot in God's eyes. And all of a sudden, when we get heaven's perspective, we see that we have more than we thought we had. And because of that, we're required to do more than we thought we had to do. I'll say it again. God's perspective shows us that we have more than what we thought we had. And because of that, we have to do more than what we thought we had to do. Some of us, our problem isn't that we don't make enough money. Our problem is that we try to live and to look richer than we are. But that's another sermon. I just thought I'd deposit that. We'll come back to that at a later time. But because we have more than we thought we had, we're on the hook for more. On the hook for more. And that's our reality. This is how God sees it. You say, okay, preacher, okay, I'm convinced. I have a great problem. I'm convinced. I see myself in this story. But preacher, if greed is the problem, what then is the solution? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I have the answer to you. 
The solution is this. The only way to become less greedy is to become more generous. I know you wanted me to drop some really heavy stuff on you this morning. The secret to overcoming greed. The only way to become less greedy is to become more generous. More generous. And generosity comes when we find an understanding of what it means to do good, helpful things consistently for others, even, often, at our own hurt. A great cost to us. It's the essence of what it means to come to a generous disposition. And some of us really struggle with generosity. And some of us struggle with generosity because we're just we're focused on ourselves. Others came by that a little more honestly. You, you, you had an upbringing where you had very little or somebody, you know, had access to your resource and it made life hard for you because you had to do without and that produced a certain measure of greediness. Or maybe you grew up wealthy and you saw not, you didn't see generosity models. So however you came by it, however you came by greed and stinginess, the antidote for the, for, for the Christian is generosity. And I think this passage, I want to look at a passage in uh, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I think these few short verses will give us a really good snapshot of what God expects from us as it relates to dealing with this issue of greed in our life. I said earlier that to, to, to come to grips with our greed and to deal with it and to turn it around is to become more generous. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll give you a second to get that. We'll also be projecting on the screens. But let me just set up this particular passage. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. And he's encouraging them to be generous. And he does so by telling, telling them this story of the Macedonian church. And apparently this Macedonian church has experienced some type of natural disaster. But in the midst of their own need, in the midst of actually a great need... They were very generous and they were very eager to give. And Paul is kind of using some of his pastoral wisdom to kind of light a fire under the Corinthians and urge them to continue to be generous. Second Corinthians chapter 8, we'll start at verse 1. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. Verse 4, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They begged to be a part of this. I just picture them saying, please let us give. Please let us uh, contribute to this, right? Verse 5, they even did more than what we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speaking, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Paul says, you're good at a lot of stuff. But I want you to be good, gooder, if I could use that expression, at giving and generosity. Verse 8, I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of our other churches. And Paul is, appears to be being a little slick here, you know. He's saying, listen, I don't mean to boast about another church. I don't mean to put any pressure on you. But the Macedonian church, those guys are rocking it. As it relates to generosity. I'm just saying, Paul says, right? 
They're really into giving. We see this great picture in these few short verses of generosity. And Paul basically gives us a how-to as it relates to being generous and dealing with the problem that we have. And that problem is greed. And Paul shows us basically how we're supposed to walk this out. Walk this out. Listen, I can stand up here and preach until I turn blue. And that's a lot of preaching. Right? But if I don't show you, if I don't tell us how to walk this out when we leave these doors, when we go into our regular lives, then all of this is meaningless. And I think this passage is impactful because Paul helps us to understand through this passage how we walk this out, how we achieve or how we secure the remedy for our greed problem. And I see four things in these eight short verses. The first thing we see is Paul is saying, listen, realize that you don't have to be rich to be generous. You don't have to be rich to be generous. And I think that many of us need to really square that away. Because how many of us says, listen, when my ship comes in, dude, dude, they're going to have to stop me from giving. Man, if I hit that Powerball, dude, listen, I'm going to give most of it away. You know, when I get this promotion, man, all those orphans, all those homeless people to that past, dude, they're getting McDonald's every day, dude. When my ship comes in. But right now, I'm not rich. Right now, I don't have a whole lot. So right now, I can, you know, I can kind of justify. I can justify being selfish. I can justify being stingy. I can justify not being a generous person as the scriptures command us. I can justify it. But then we read this passage of these faithful Macedonian believers. Sold out crazy Christ followers who were true believers. Down to their bones down to their core, right? And we said true faith in God produces transformation. True faith in God, we'll see it in our actions. We'll see it in our love. We'll see it in our walk. And we look at these Macedonian believers in just a few verses, we get a snapshot of their generosity and their understanding that even though they don't have a whole lot, they still have a duty to care for those who are in need. They still have a duty to pour out even in their life. We see that you don't have to be rich to be generous. See that they gave, and they gave freely, they gave eagerly, they gave lavishly. But the kicker is that they gave out of their extreme poverty, and this is confounding to us who are selfish. Confounding to those of us who are okay with just taking, okay with just receiving, and have such high expectations of other people and such demands we place on other people and so want to be bailed out when we're in trouble and so want to be given aid when we need it but find it so difficult, so difficult to see and respond to the needs of others. It's confounding to us how somebody can give out of their extreme poverty. Makes no earthly sense. What kind of person does that? What kind of person lives that way? kind of person who is so convicted and so convinced that the core of who we are is supposed to be giving and serving and loving. Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. A generous-hearted person who takes seriously, who takes seriously just what we're supposed to be doing here on this earth. Just what our lives are designed to do, and that is to be instruments of God's purpose and his generosity to others. I tell you, as a pastor, man, I love to see it. I love to see when people who have so little, so little, be so concerned for the welfare of others. As pastors, we get these, we see these checks, 
you know, the, the, the log that comes in, uh, the giving each and every week, and we see just these, just these small amounts, small amounts, $10.37, and you know somebody's tithing. You know they're tithing off of a meager paycheck. You know their story, and you know that it's difficult. They're having trouble making Eden's meat, and yet they're always inquiring about so-and-so. They're always inquiring, do they need some help? I haven't seen them in a while. Is the, do they need food? Do they need groceries? And I look at this person who's barely making it, just struggling to get by, struggling to get by with such a care and concern for somebody else. And I go, this person, they get it. They get it. They get it. And you know what's, what's amazing is that person that I'm talking about, these people, this type of people, even in the midst of their lack, even in the midst of their need, even though they have sickness in their body and it's hard for them to get about, they have a peace with God and others that others would kill for. They have a connection to God in a way that people would pay for it if, they could, if, if, it, was, if it was sold in stores. Always smiling. Always got a pep in their step. Always got a kind word for somebody. Their soul is anchored in this understanding of who they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to live. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You don't have to be rich to be generous. To those of you who say, one day I'll be generous, when my ship comes in, I say, baloney. I say, baloney. And I want to say something else, but there are children in here. If you are generous with a little, I have no confidence that you'll be generous with a lot. I'll say it to this side, because that side gave me an ugly look. (laughs) If you aren't generous with little, you won't be generous with much. I don't care what you say. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your circumstance is. Because it doesn't have to do with means, it has to do with the heart. It has to do with your understanding or misunderstanding about what God requires of you. Talking about generosity, you don't have to be rich to be generous. The second thing I see here is that Paul suggests somehow that these folks have given their heart to God first. Right? They've given their heart to God first. In other words, they were true sold-out believers. And as sold-out believers, they had internalized God's generous nature and the outworking of their life. They just lived that out. They, They just lived that out. Because they were serious about this. They were serious about this. Verse 5 says, they even did more than we'd hoped. Paul says, these poor people, these impoverished people, recovering from their own lack, recovering from their own, the devastation of whatever natural disaster had overtaken them, these poor people, they give it more than we'd hope. For their first action, Paul says, was to give themselves to the Lord and to us. Give themselves to To the Lord and us. Paul says, listen, these guys were the real deal. They were the real deal. Truly devoted to God. Because of that devotion, the natural response to God's generosity was to be generous to others. The natural outworking of their understanding of who God is and what he expects was to be, you know, almost, you know, instinctively generous when they saw needs. When they saw needs. I love the quote that says, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can't love without giving. And for those of us who have a greed problem, particularly those who have a stinginess problem, might assess that there's something wrong with us if we don't instinctively, if we don't naturally 
seek out the plight of others in ways that we can help. Listen, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. If you have a problem with giving, you, prob- you have a love problem. You have a love problem. Scriptures tell me that. I didn't make that up. They gave their hearts to God first. In other words, they were real deal Christians. I question the depth of our faith in the absence of generous, in the absence of regular, instinctive generosity. I'll say it again. I question whether or not there's maybe a lack of faith. Maybe there's a lack of connection. The depth of one's faith when I regularly see selfish action. Because the fruit of the God doesn't produce that. The love of God doesn't produce that. It doesn't foster that. It doesn't grow that. You see what I'm saying? Now, I don't say this to be condemning. I just say this because we're in the doctor's office today, and I'm trying to tell you, give you an assessment of how things really are. But they gave their hearts to God first. Because love for God produces and it demands generosity. The other thing I see is that they got for themselves a broader perspective. Paul wanted to paint for them a broader perspective. Paul says, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the churches, the other churches. And Paul says, listen, I'm just showing you what what Christians do that really believe in this. It might sound almost manipulative, but Paul says, listen, let me give you an example, right? Because some of us without examples of generosity and some of us have very few around us, then we're left to believe that what we're doing is okay. That what, we, what we're doing is on, on par. And Paul says, no, no, this is, this, is, this is what it looks like to be really generous. This is what it looks like to care for others. He says, I'm showing you this example of poor people in hard circumstances who joyfully give money away. And Paul says, I'm showing you this so maybe it'll light a fire under you. Maybe it'll encourage you to lean in. Maybe it'll encourage you to turn up the light in your life and to have a good look around and take a good inventory of what might be corrupting an instinctive move toward generosity. We got all kinds of people in this room, all different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds, all sorts of people in this room. And sometimes we only learn our generosity deficit when we see somebody who's doing it right. When we see somebody who's doing it right. And even now, some of you are thinking, man, so-and-so really is generous. Dang, they don't have nearly as much as I have. Man, I ought to step it up. Man, I can do more. I can do better. And I think what Paul was trying to do is give them a healthy dose of perspective. He wasn't trying to manipulate them. wasn't trying to shame them. He was trying to say, eh, this, is, this is how it's done. This is how it's done. And finally, when we look at the whole of these scriptures that we've looked at today, both passages, we see that God wants to give us an eternal perspective. Just like last week, we looked at, you know, Jesus saying, hey, as you did unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. He was giving eternal perspective. I know this is what you value. I know this is what you see, but let's zoom out and I'll show you what heaven sees. Not only what heaven sees, but what heaven values. I'll show you that. I'll show you what I'm really basing your eternal destination on. I'll show you what's really, really, really important. 
And Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, beware, guard against every kind of grief. Life is not measured by how much you own. And what is Jesus saying? It doesn't count to me how much you own. I'm not impressed by that. I don't read People magazine and ooh and ah over it. I don't read Us Weekly and go, man, those, sure, those guys sure have it great because they have lots and lots of stuff. Jesus says, what I'm looking at, what I'm measuring is something very, very different. And I would submit to you today that you might want to pay closer attention to the person who can drop your soul into hell or that can grant you eternal life and to live with him forever. That's the person that we want to sort of base this thing on. That's what we want to look at. That's what we want to focus on. And Jesus says this as he tells this story about this guy who had built other barns. He says, listen, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. He zooms out and gives us heaven's perspective. What's heaven's perspective? What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and to lose their soul? What good is it for a person to build barn after barn to store their, their, their resources when they've lost their soul? What good is it that you're rich, young man, when you forfeit life with the king for your riches? What good is it that you've gained status and wealth and the favor of men on this side of death only to forfeit heaven and eternity and the beauty and the bounty of the kingdom of God on the other side of this life? Fools lay hold of treasure here. The wise, the faithful, do all they can on this side of death to lay up treasure in heaven. To lay up treasure in heaven. Greed comes when we ignore the fact that there's something more to this life. In fact, the definition of greed is to say, you know what? This is all there is. And I tell you, I'm not surprised when people who don't subscribe to uh, the, the principles and the teachings of Jesus, I'm not surprised with un, when unsaved people pursue earthly wealth and, and earthly treasure. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised when people have this morbid fear of death. I'm not surprised. You know what? Because their reality, this is all there is. This is all there is. I better make what I can, save what I can, spend what I can, eat, drink, and be merry because when I clock out of here, that's it. Right? I'm so afraid of death because, man, that's it. But in the life of the faithful, in the life of the believer... In the life of those who understand that there's more to this life than what we see now. More to this than what we can acquire and build up for ourselves here. They know that there's something more precious on the other side of this. All of a sudden, all of a sudden the things don't matter like they used to. Sure, we enjoy the snacks of life. Sure, we enjoy making a nice living, providing a nice life for our kids. But it doesn't consume us But because we know that's not the most important thing. It doesn't consume us because we know that there's something greater on the other side of this. We don't fear death. I mean, we're not signing up to die, you know. We're not jumping out of planes without parachutes because we're daredevils, right? But we don't look to the future with such uncertainty and such, you know, pessimism. We know that there's something else out there. And generosity comes from understanding the fleeting nature of worldly possessions, the fleeting nature of this world's stuff. That's where generosity comes from. And some of us would do ourselves well 
right now and in the grand scheme of eternity to unhook ourselves from the hole that stuff has on us. And this particular message fits neatly in this series as we, get, we try to raise our awareness for the needs of those around us, both local and abroad. We won't do that if we don't become generous people. We don't do that unless we deal with our greed and our selfishness and the sin that, 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 that comes along with that. Worship team, you can come up as I close. We won't do that. You say, listen, man, I, you know what? I, I don't see all this need that you're talking about. I don't really see that. I don't see what the big deal is. And I tell you, you won't. You won't see it. You can't see it. Because you've got more important things in front of you. But I tell you what, man, as we lean into this and as God's heart is formed inside us and as his character and his nature is formed inside of us, we will begin to love what God loves and we'll begin to hate what he hates. And we'll, we'll see that our heart will begin to break for the things that break God's heart. And as we move closer to this, as we embrace the truth of God's word on this particular subject, all of a sudden you'll see stuff that you've never seen before. You'll see needs that you've never seen before. You'll care in ways that you've never cared before. This is what we're talking about, friends. I'm trying to convince you just to be a better person. Just so that you're, you know, the, the giving statements that you submit for your taxes can be larger and you can have a better, you know, you know, feel better about yourself. This is who we are. This is the kingdom of God. This is who we are. It's not optional. It's not optional. And some of us say, man, I'm here. I, I got to deal with this greed. I got to deal with this selfishness. I got to lean into generosity. I got to lean into generosity. I want that. I want that. I need that. I don't know where, where to start, though. I don't know where to start. But I believe that God is faithful. If we seek him, we seek him. He'll deal with our stinginess. He'll deal with our selfishness. Plant his heart inside of us. Convict us about things that didn't matter before. Show us things that we couldn't see before. Make us more like his son, Jesus. Transform us and change us. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? And my prayer today is as we worship God, that he will continue to till the soil of our hearts. And that these seeds of faith and these seeds of generosity and love and concern and care for other people will go deep in, our, in the soil of our hearts and it will produce a great harvest and that we will never be the same. We will never be the same. And as a collection of individuals who look and view life differently, we as a whole church will be the hands and feet of Jesus in ways that we've never been before when we deal with our main problem. And that's our greed problem. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for your example that you teach us that you require generosity and not stinginess. And Father, we've, we've already acknowledged that greed and greediness is a difficult thing to, 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 to acknowledge because it's so subtle. It just kind of lies beneath all these other noble things, Father. But you've pointed out something in us that you want to deal with today. You pointed out something in us that you're requiring us to deal with and to focus on today, Lord. And we know that you don't intend to, to bring condemnation, but you want to transform us and make us like your son, Jesus. So as we worship you, Father, would you continue to speak to us? Would you continue to illuminate the things in our heart that you want to change, that you want to remove? Make us like your son, Jesus. Make us generous. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. We want to love what you love. Hate what you hate. All we have is yours. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.